Thank you, Pastor, very much. Wow, what a wonderful last few days we've had. Wonderful history lesson on Thursday evening with Harry Reeder and then hearing from Dr. Reeder and Dr. Lilback on Friday evening. And to get to be here with you, I'm grateful for uh, Greg Poland for preaching last week. I was so blessed by that message both times. I kind of wish you'd preached it a third time. I feel like I could have gotten into it. But, of course, it's available online, and so grateful for that. And getting to work with Pastor John each day, I'm just thankful for the Lord's blessings and getting to stand up here and see all of you. You look you look good. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for the privilege of serving. We're going to be starting a new series today. I've been debating for the last several weeks uh, what to do as Pastor John and I have been talking and thinking about uh, what to preach as we're ramping up toward Easter, the celebration of the resurrection, I had thought about uh, doing a series toward the end of the gospel according to Mark. And, and then finally, the first of the week, I decided to revamp everything. And uh, we're going to be uh, doing a, a series entitled, We Sing to Jesus. And we'll be considering uh, passages in the New Testament that are deemed to be either hymns or portions of hymns. And uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. These passages are noted for having a certain uh, lyrical quality in their original uh, writing. And so uh, that's, that's what we're going to do. And uh, we're going to be learning about the Lord Jesus because there's wonderful doctrinal content in these, in these passages. And so today we'll be looking primarily at Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 to 21, but we're actually going to pick up reading uh, before that, with verse 14. So, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Now, remember, I'm reading from the Bible. This is God's Word. It is His inerrant Word, our only infallible rule of faith and practice. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. And so at 1133 a.m. Eastern Time, the sun's rays will be directly over the equator, and it will officially be spring. Now, I'm glad there are smart people who can tell us when exactly things like that are going to happen. But just so you'll know, not only is today the first day of spring, it is National Ravioli Day. It also is World Storytelling Day. So it's a perfect opportunity to grab a can of Chef Boy RD and tell some good stories on the first day of spring as you smell flowers. But we're here today because there is the story above all stories. 
There is the story of our Lord Jesus Christ who bore our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead and who ever lives to make intercession for us. Spring being a symbol of regeneration and the renewal of life is, I believe, God's way of telling us about the hope of everlasting life that we have in Christ, the one in whom there truly is new life. And as we look at Ephesians, of course, we are struck throughout the book by its wonderful, rich content as Paul talks about God's wondrous plan for his people in Christ Jesus. And he who is a prisoner at this point in his life, nevertheless being concerned for the broader church, speaks of prayer in verse 14 as he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We're mindful that all of us have our origin in God. God has created all things by the word of his power. In the space of six days, he has created all things. Boy, I know that's terribly politically incorrect to say that, but we believe in a creator. And in him, we live and move and have our being. And so we all have derived our very existence and continue to derive our very existence from God. We're breathing right now because God enables us. Even the atheist who vehemently denies God owes his very life and breath to the one that he or she denies. And yet, they continue in this life. So Paul speaks of prayer. He speaks of wondrous things that are too wonderful for our minds to comprehend as he talks about the love of Christ. And we see in verses 20 and 21 in particular, what at least form the, the notion or idea of a song, an expression of praise rendered to God through singing. Singing is an essential and central element in the worship of God. We are to offer to the Lord in worship only those things that are commanded by the Lord. If there's anything we learn from the Old Testament with all of those rituals, and we heard some of that in our Old Testament reading this morning, if there's anything that we learn from the Old Testament passages dealing with all of the sacrificial system, it is that God is intimately concerned not only that he be worshipped, but the way in which he is worshipped. Now, we live under grace. I'll proclaim that as loudly as anyone. But yet, we are to worship the one true and living God only and in the way that he prescribes. That's important in our Christian understanding. But singing is an important way in which we worship him. It is commanded of the Lord. Singing to the Lord a new song. We've all gotten to sing today. We get to. Even as we're commanded to. Of course, the Old Testament contains many sacred songs and hymns. The oldest of those goes back to Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses, after the Israelites are delivered through the Red Sea. Singing of God's deliverance and rescue is central to the worship of the Lord's people back at least that far. But then there's the entire book of the Psalms that we have. The New Testament reinforces the importance of speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Given their style and wording, of course, there are several passages in the New Testament that are either quotations from hymns or that form the origins of certain hymns used for worship. Now, I tend to believe that these hymns find their origins in the Scripture and were thus utilized by God's people. But however, 
they have come about, we know that ultimately they are inspired by God because they're in his word. And we find that these passages convey profound truths about the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And that's important because in singing, we're not merely trying to convey emotion or an expression of love, but in our expression of worship to the Lord God, we are proclaiming truth to God, the very truth that he's revealed to us that we wouldn't know except that God enabled us to see it and to understand it. And so as we convey this profound truth through singing, it proves that singing is not merely incidental to worship. And that Jesus, in particular, is not merely incidental to worship, but he is the essential object of our worship. And that is profound. You see, Jesus is not merely an angel. There are various cults that believe that Jesus is the first created being, that he is, in essence, an angel. But you will find in the Bible that angels never receive worship. And when John, in particular, tries to render worship to an angel in the book of the Revelation, the angel rebukes him. But one thing that Jesus does throughout his life and ministry is that he receives worship. It's one of the evidences of the deity of Christ in that Jesus, in fact, understood that he is fully God. I mean, people are willing to say, well, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a great philosopher. What good teacher or philosopher do you know would accept worship from his students? Think about maybe you, you had some professor you were particularly enamored with in college. Did you ever go up to the front of class and bow down before them and offer homage? And if you had, what would have been the response? That probably some people in white jackets would have shown up and taken you to a place to be examined it. No, no good teacher would accept worship from his students because no one would claim to be God except Jesus accepted worship from those around him. We worship him. What did the practices of the earliest Christians look like, especially to non-Christian observers? We know, at least in one instance, one of the earliest and best descriptions of early Christian behavior comes from a man by the name of Pliny. We call him Pliny the Younger because he had an uncle that was, guess what, older than him. And, of course, uh, you know, being very creative in our designation of such things, we call him Pliny the Older or the Elder. But Pliny the Younger, who was very well connected in political circles in Rome, left behind a lot of writings. He was the governor of Bithynia, for one thing, a client of the Roman emperor Trajan, and after hearing suspicious reports about the practices and meetings of Christians, he made an inquiry and found that they, quote, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. His statement agrees with early Christian texts that testify that this was common practice. So we don't merely revere Christ in the way that we respect great people, but we actually worship him because he is the second person of the triune Godhead. We understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not something that we can easily describe by way of analogy, but something that we believe nevertheless. And so Paul, as he 
plums the depths in as much as possible in a sinful world. This matter of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is praying to the Father. And that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. But power for what reason? Power, which is derived from the word dunamis, from which we get dynamite. What is the reason for this? What, what purpose could there be in wanting us to have power? It is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. We tend to want to have power for insignificant, trivial reasons. When I was a, a boy growing up, I would pray and ask God to help me outrun Jim Clemens on the playground at Hazelwood Elementary School. Or to be able to ride a motorcycle like my brother could. Or to be able to get the horse to gallop as fast as my cousin Dale could when we were riding our uncle's horse, Jenny. By the way, she did one time, not because I wanted her to. I was out toward the forks of the road at Plot Creek Road when a motorcycle came by. And, buddy, she took off through the lane at Green Valley and I wound up at the barn lickety-split hanging on for dear life. But we pray for trivial things, you know. And, but when Paul talks about praying that we may have power, boy, you talk about something that, that we need power for. It's to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You may be filled with the fullness of God. God has the wisdom and power to do far more than our minds can begin to conceive. Now to him who is able. Boy, we could settle in right there and probably have a series for the rest of the year. God is able. When we bow our knees before the Father and go to him in prayer, we don't have to concern ourselves and wonder whether or not God has the ability to do what's needed in our lives to carry out his purpose. And his powers are never degraded. You know, we read about, and otherwise we know from experience, how things can lose their potency. Medicine that we take, if it sits around too long, can lose its potency. As can vitamins and gasoline and other things. But God's power is never degraded. He is fully able to carry out his purposes in us. And has that wisdom and power to do far more than our minds can conceive. No, it's never a question of whether God is able. God is never in heaven wringing his hands saying, well, I sure would love to do more for my people if I just could. And literally, God is able to do super abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. Paul actually coins a word here when he speaks of doing far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He just puts some things together. You ever... I don't know if you ever have had any acquaintance with German or not, and I know enough to get in trouble. If they dropped me off there today, I would probably starve to death, except I can say Wiener Schnitzel. <laughs> but Germans just cram all kinds of letters and words together, and they come up with these things that, you know, almost take a whole line of a page. I know our, our word worldview that Francis Schaeffer and others use comes from that German word, Weltanschauung. You know, that 
just how do you put that many vowels together? It's, it's like some of you Dutch folks from the Midwest. I don't know, just O's and I's and everything, just all together. But Paul comes up with this word to describe how that God is able to do far more than is conceivable in our minds. Above all that we can ask or even imagine. And it is that same power that is wielded in response to our prayers. That's the power that is at work in us. Listen, I know. Our prayers are not often answered in the way that we want them to be. There are people praying in the Ukraine right now that the bombing will stop. And the bombs keep falling. I think about a woman in St. Louis I was told about who years ago was praying that God would give her children. As she watched other relatives and friends seemingly able to bear children without, without any thought even, it seemed to her. And she prayed for children, but in the course of time she found herself trying to help some unwed mothers who were contemplating abortion. And because she loved children so much, she couldn't conceive of them killing those children before they were born. And so she began to help them. And pretty soon a whole crisis pregnancy ministry developed because of her. She never was able to have her own biological children. But through her, literally thousands of children's lives have been saved. God answered prayer there in ways that she couldn't have conceived of from the beginning. Even now, not only are bombs falling in the Ukraine, but literally Christians are crying out because they're being tortured. Not because they've done anything wrong, but because they love the Lord Jesus and they live in a tyrannical part of the world where they are oppressed and unbelieving tyrants are trying to kill them and they're crying out to the Lord for deliverance. Unbelievers point at things like that and they'll say, see, where is your God? It's a mystery to us. We seldom understand the way in which God works because his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. But yet knowing that he is able to accomplish in us his purposes, this results in praise to him. Doxology coming from the word glory, which in the original is doxa. Doxology, praise to the Lord. And here means in particular adoration, honor, praise, and homage ascribed to God alone. Now God's glory is manifested in different ways. In the Old Testament, it's, it's a, the word for glory means a, a kind of weightiness, substance, significance. In the New Testament, it has more to do with the, the radiance of light. But even so, even in the Old Testament, as we think of the Heaviness or weightiness of God, yet he was manifested in light, a pillar of light, guided the Israelites by night. The Shekinah glory of God shone upon the mercy seat at the top of the Ark of the Covenant. But praise and glory are offered or ascribed to God. And so as we think of the one who is able to do far beyond anything we could ask or think, According to that power that is worked within us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in us. Listen, do you realize where you would be at this moment without the power of God at work in your lives? We would still be dead and in the darkness of unbelief. But God, through his power, has raised us to life. 
ushered us from darkness into light. And the fact that you are not being carried along by the current of the world's trends at this moment, increasingly toward unbelief and darkness and an eternity without him, is entirely due to the power of God that is at work within you, conforming you more and more to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not some fairy godmother somewhere floating on a cloud just waiting to grant you three wishes. He's out to make you like Jesus. He's out to equip us for heaven above, not for the trivial things of this life, but so that we may forever and ever find enjoyment and delight in giving glory and honor and praise to him who is worthy. That's the power that is at work within you. And that is no small thing. We find that the glory given by the church to God is an overflow of the glory given by Christ. Our God delights in glorifying himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally in fellowship with one another. Now, I know I'm speaking of a mystery. I'm going way above my pay grade, and I'm talking about things I can't understand. This defies analogy. You know, when people start saying, well, the Trinity is like something, watch out, because generally they're about to give you some illustration of heresy, because it all falls apart. Three persons, one God. I know mathematicians look at that and they wonder, how is that the case? But even so, that's the way he's revealed to us in Scripture. The Father delights to glorify the Son. The Son delights in glorifying the Father. The Spirit delights in revealing the knowledge of the Son to us and of glorifying the Father and the Son. All throughout eternity, they have been in this perfect, beautiful relationship, wholly devoted to each other. And in Christ Jesus, not to give away what Dr. Lilback is going to talk about, but in our union with Christ, we are brought into this fellowship so that by giving glory to God, we're actually participating in that which Jesus is doing at this moment as he glorifies the Father. But guess what? The Father is glorifying the Son. Our Savior will be glorified. He is now and he ever shall be. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. How is it that God would choose us, a ragtag bunch of saved sinners, to be the means by which he would be glorified? That is one of the world's great mysteries. I completely identify with Billy Graham when he said years ago, when somebody asked him, said, why you? Why are you this, this evangelist that has preached to millions? And Mr. Graham said, I don't know. He said, there are two things I don't understand. He said, first of all, why God would have even saved me in the first place. And secondly, why he would have called me to preach this gospel. I don't know. I don't know either. But God has chosen us that we might glorify his name. And guess what? We do that when we're singing. That's why we ought to do it with great gusto. It doesn't matter whether you can sing like Annie Frost or not. Just close your eyes and don't pay any attention into your mind. You're singing as beautifully as she is. You know, in my head, every time we sing, how great thou art, I, I'm George Beverly Shea. And anybody standing around me knows I'm not. But we're singing to God. We're giving glory to God. We are rendering 
that very thing of which he is worthy. I mean, think about the way we cheer for athletes and politicians and entertainers and famous people. Are they worthy? No. How disappointing that we read stories about them and we find out these people that we've admired turned out to be something other than we've imagined. Listen, when we get to heaven and Jesus is more fully revealed to us, we are only going to love him all the more. We're only going to want to glorify him all the more. Because the more we come to understand of him, the more we realize how worthy he is and how we must render to him everything as we glorify his name together. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And so the praise, honor, and adoration that is due him will forever be rendered to him. There will be no end to it. And our delight as we render that praise to him will only become more profound. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So as Paul, together with believers in the first century, worshiped and glorified God, so we continue in that grand and glorious tradition. Yes, now in a different language, we have different songs. Over 950,000 identified Christian hymns and songs. It's more than that because there are so many that have never been published. It astounds the mind to consider how that there is this inexhaustible source from which people can derive feeling and have truth with which to convey the deep and wondrous things of God that we may worship him. And we'll have all eternity to do that. And since God alone receives glory, when the scriptures ascribe glory to Christ, they testify to his supreme deity and they provide us with an unalterable pattern for our own worship. We worship Jesus even as we worship the Father and the Holy Spirit. Yes, one God, but in three glorious persons. And so God is at work in ways that we cannot begin to comprehend. But as his power is at work in us more and more, are we able to comprehend him? And that's a wonder, Christian. As God accomplishes his purpose in you, reflect and think about your response to him. As I reflected on today being World Storytelling Day or whatever that is, I've thought about all the stories. You've heard me tell some of those ad infinitum, ad nauseum. But one story surpasses them all. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. There's the story as we glorify him together. Heavenly Father, grant to us, O Lord, as we, like little children, being confronted with profound truth that is far more wonderful for us than our minds can comprehend. O gracious Father, grant that your power may be at work in us, that we might more fully each day come to understand just who you are and what you've done for us. And Father, may you be glorified. Forgive us for opportunities missed to sing and to utter praise. Grant that our hearts 
will be in gear with our mouths, that our minds will be in tune, and that by your grace, we may give glory to you. We have this wonderful word, a word which means so be it. A word which means this is truth. And so we utter it, even as we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we conclude, I invite you to give your attention to words on the screen as we sing together. He leadeth me. Yes, sir. Y'all don't need words. Thank you for that. As we conclude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And everyone said together, amen. Amen.